Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The FT The Autumn Statement and what it means for your money. Welcome to a special edition of The Money Show, one of the FT's most popular podcasts. I'm Jonathan Ely and I'll be giving you the rundown on the Chancellor's latest moves in downloadable form, with the help of my FT colleagues James Pickford, Judith Evans, plus a special studio guest, Micah Curry of Fidelity Personal Investing. This week saw the final autumn statement before the election, so we expected the odd giveaway here and there. Mr Osborne's hand was restricted, however, by the poor state of the public finances. Britain's economy is growing strongly, but many of the jobs that has been created are low-paid or part-time, and there's been a big increase in self-employment too. That's created two headaches. One is that most people do not feel much better off, and the other is that, because they are not earning so much, they are not paying much tax. The Chancellor's income tax receipts in particular are way behind forecast. Still, with an election coming up, there's always money to be found for populist measures, and Mr Osborne rustled up a few billion here and there by hitting banks, big multinationals and non-doms. What will he spend it on? Well, the biggest measure was a reform of stamp duty on residential property, which will henceforth be progressive rather than slab-like. For most people, it will mean they pay less tax when they buy a home. Only those buying above around one million will find themselves paying a lot more. James Pickford has been chewing over the detail. James, first of all, can you explain the difference between the uh, progressive system that the Chancellor has proposed and the so-called slab system that it that it is replacing? Yes, so um, this is really quite a radical change for stamp duty. This slab system has been uh, criticised as being a big problem for for many years, and and has got worse as they have introduced more slabs into the system. What happens in the in the old system? Uh, it was that home buyers would would pay the relevant tax rate, whether it's one percent or three percent or four percent, on the full value of the property. But the problem with it was at the point at the threshold where the percentage changed. So let's say you you had many properties that were sold at £250,000, where the threshold changed um, from 1% to 3%. But if you wanted to sell your property for £250,000 and and £1, your buyer would be paying a, a rate of 3%, which whacked up the the tax the stamp duty to seven and a half thousand pounds from 
£2,500. So the result of that was that you got a whole lot of bunching of properties just below the threshold and and very few properties um, in, in the sort of 10,000 to 20,000 region above the threshold. What we have now is a progressive system where the curve is very, pretty much smooth all the way up. So there are different points at which you, you, your, your, your basic tax goes up. At 250,000, um, it goes uh, from 2% uh, to 5%. And then there's a big gap um, where you pay um, progressively uh, 5% between 250,000 and 925,000. Then after that, you pay 10% uh, up to 1.5 million. And then after 1.5 million, you pay 12%. But presumably, you're not paying 10 or 12% on the whole purchase price, only that part of it which is above the threshold. Quite correct, quite correct. So of your total sum that you're paying, you will pay nothing on the first 125,000, 2% on uh, the 125,000 to 250,000 and so on. Okay, so presumably there is there's going to be a magic number somewhere along that curve at which people become worse off than they would have been under the old system. Yes, Where, whereabouts is that? The break even is at nine hundred thirty seven and a half thousand pounds. This is where uh, you will end up paying more, broadly speaking. There is a slight wrinkle in that. There's a, there's a little sort of purple patch between a million and 1.125 million where you will pay less than you used to. Uh, But that's because of the the nature of the slab tax. And after that point, you're definitely paying more. Okay, and presumably the 2% of people who are going to pay more are going to be concentrated in a few very small areas of London and probably quite a few of them will be overseas buyers who coincidentally don't have a vote. That's right. London and the South East is going to be a hotspot for this tax. The last time they, they did regional calculations of uh, the, 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 the amount that was paid in stamp duty, London paid more than uh, a third. And since then, in the last year, stamp duty shot up, um, the, or rather the revenues uh, to, to the Treasury have, sta- have shot up by a third. Um, so in, in 2013-14, the expected revenues uh, were just over £9 billion. So this is going to be substantial sums paid by uh, the wealthier home buyer. And uh, I guess the question on everyone's lips is how will this affect prices? I mean, clearly it's very good uh, for buyers in the sense that that the vast majority will will pay less tax to the government. But will sellers just compensate for that by saying, oh, well, um, you know, you don't have to pay as much tax now, so I'm just going to stick five grand on the asking price instead? Yes, well, uh, people will be waking up this morning, particularly at the upper end, thinking, oh, my house is worth potentially 5% less than it was last night. But at the same time, the housing market is not as frothy as it was. Because of that cooling market, people are going to find it quite hard simply to whack on uh, the extra money. Broadly, estate agents, brokers, economists expect that, um, particularly around the cliff edges, uh, we will see greater demand. Uh, Because if you have a house um, that you think is worth 260,000, 270,000, uh, you'll no longer think, oh, I, I need to wait for the value of that house to rise to a point where I can put it on the market and I don't have to discount it to below 250000 And so they, they expect uh, the, the progressive nature of this new tax to bring in more activity, particularly around those areas. 
of course, at the other end, at the top end, uh, it's likely to to dampen demand, um, particularly if you want to buy another house uh, in the same sort of price bracket. You're going to think twice. Could be a big upsurge in basement conversions. Thank you very much, James. What else? Well, there was a change to the rules on ISAs. Currently, when you die, an ISA loses its tax protection and all the capital gains and income within it become liable for tax at the beneficiary's marginal rate. That's in contrast to pensions, which following changes proposed earlier this year, will from next April be much easier to pass on to beneficiaries. The Chancellor has remedied that by changing the rules on ISAs, and here to tell us about that is Micah Curry from Fidelity Personal Investing. Micah, welcome to The Money Show. What does this change mean in practical terms? If an individual dies and leaves an estate that includes an ISA um, to their spouse, what happens next? Thanks, Jonathan. Yes, yeah, so very well, welcome news for ISA savers, particularly those that are married or in a civil partnership. So on the death of the one partner, their ISA will be valued, and then the surviving spouse will be able to top up their ISA to the value of whatever the deceased has accumulated into their ISA. So it's thought as a one-off mechanism for enabling the transfer in of a deceased spouse's ISA holdings to that of the surviving spouse. But as ever with these things, there's a bit of devil in the detail. An interesting wrinkle is that the holdings in the deceased's ISA don't have to be given to the spouse. They could, for example, be inherited by a child or anyone else without the tax wrapper. However, if this were the case, the surviving spouse would still be able to top up their own ISA from other sources to the value at the time of death of the deceased's ISA. It also looks like there will be a time limit, say, for example, one year from death. What about the in- implications for inheritance tax as well? Clearly, uh, transfers between uh, spouses don't uh, count towards inheritance tax anyway. Presumably, though, if you left uh, an ISA to, for instance, your children, then it would be liable for inheritance tax. That's right. So ma- married partners, civil partners, don't pay any inheritance tax. You can pass anything over to your husband or wife, but it's different if you're passing an ISA over to another beneficiary, for example, your children. Whatever you pass over will count towards the value of your estate along with any other savings or investments. And currently your your inheritors will have to pay 40% inheritance tax when the value of your estate exceeds £325,000. Now, there's been a lot of debate this year about um, the relative attractions of pensions, which have seen an enormous amount of regulatory change, um, versus ISAs. And the sort of prevailing wisdom that was that pensions were getting a lot more attractive and a lot more flexible because of the reforms. Does this move sort of change that in a big way, or, or do you think they're just uh, different strokes for different folks? It does level the playing field to a degree, and as we know, the Chancellor has given pensions a lot of attention in the past year, but it depends on what your broader financial planning goals are. If you want accessibility, if you want flexibility, an ISA has the upper hand. If you want that upfront tax relief, a pension has the upper hand. But ideally, you you want to complement the two vehicles. Depending on where you are in life, what your goals are, the two can actually work together very well. There was also a slight rise in the uh, ISA limit. There was a big increase, of course, in the budget and then a very small increase announced um, for next year. But most people don't use anything like their full ISA allowance, do they? 
No, a lot of people don't use the full ISA allowance, but the key point is that it's there and you can use it. If you inherit some money, you can shelter away in this tax year £15,000 from the taxman. Come April next year, that goes up to £15,240. And for junior ISA, the level increases from £4,000 in the current tax year to £4,080. And the important thing to remember is that your ISA allowance is a use it or lose it benefit. So if you don't use it in the current tax year, that benefit will disappear. Finally, Michael, was there anything else that struck you uh, about the budget? I mean, we've remarked earlier that the Chancellor's hands were tied uh, to some degree by the fact that the public finances are still in a dire uh, state. But was there anything else that sort of leapt out at you as being very good for savers or investors? The Chancellor did very much paint himself as a Robin Hood figure, taking from the rich and giving to those voters that he wants to court in the run-up to the general election. But the key thing to remember, the changes that he's announced in the autumn statement and the changes that he announced in the budget earlier this year All of these changes are very, very good news for savers and investors. Pensions and ISAs have just become a lot more attractive. Thank you very much. One of the characteristics of budgets and autumn statements is that a lot of the interesting stuff is never actually mentioned in the Chancellor's speech. Instead, it's buried deep in the 110 pages or so of the full statement, which is only released once the speech is over. Now, we'll pick up a lot of this detail in FT Money this weekend. As ever, it's part of the Weekend FT, and as the name suggests, it's widely available on both Saturday and Sunday. But let's pick up on one point of detail right away. It relates to -to peer-to-peer lending, which has been a big growth area within financial services. Savers looking to find better rates than those offered by banks on savings deposits have turned to crowdfunding and peer-to-peer platforms as a way of lending money to companies and individuals for higher returns. The government has been very supportive of P2P, bringing it under the remit of the city regulator and from next year allowing it within ISAs. Judith Evans has been keeping a BDI on developments. Judith, first of all, Peer-to-peer in ISAs was announced in the budget, but it's not going to happen anytime soon, is it? Well, there were hopes when this was first announced that it might um, start from April next year. It looks like that's now been delayed. There's a consultation underway and there are a few technical issues to iron out. Like, um, for example, it can be more difficult to get your money back at short notice from peer-to-peer lending than with other forms of investment. So that might require a change to the ISA rules. However, the big peer-to-peer platforms seem quite confident that the political will is there actually across the spectrum to make this happen. So um, it'll probably be after the election, but um, it probably will go ahead perhaps as soon as uh, later on next year. And what else did the autumn statement have to say about peer-to-peer? I mean, you spotted two things there in the detail. That's right. The first one um, is a change to the taxation of peer-to-peer lenders, and it's one that the peer-to-peer platforms have been lobbying for for quite a while. Um, What it is is that you can offset your losses from bad debts, um, meaning that you only pay tax on the income you've actually made, um, so you get to keep more of your returns. This puts peer-to-peer lenders on a more equal footing with banks and is obviously good news for people who invest through them. The other change is that the government is going to consult on a withholding tax regime, meaning that income tax would be taken at source on peer-to-peer lending. Um, That's likely to happen a bit later, but it could liberate quite a few peer-to-peer investors from having to fill in a tax return, which will clearly make them quite happy. When you say a bit later, can you give an idea of the timescales for these developments? Um, I think that's likely to be um, in a couple of years' time, um, whereas the offsetting will come in from next April, so that's much sooner.
So the withholding tax, that makes peer-to-peer a bit like a bank account then, where the bank deducts interest at source before and you only get paid net interest. Is that right? That's exactly how it should work. Um, And that should save quite a few headaches for peer-to-peer investors because um, peer-to-peer does like to market itself as being very simple. But if you found yourself landed with having to do a self-assessment tax return and you weren't before, then um, suddenly it's slightly less simple. Keeping people out of self-assessment sounds a very worthwhile aim to me. There's lots more detail, of course, about all aspects of the autumn statements in this weekend's newspaper, which you can also read on tablet devices using our new web app, or you can read online right now at ft.com forward slash money. We're always keen to hear your views too. What did you think of the autumn statement? Was there anything in there that you particularly liked or disliked? Drop us a line. The address is money at ft.com. What else do we have in this weekend's paper? Well, Fundsmith founder and fund manager Terry Smith explains why companies are suddenly in such a rush to break themselves up. John Redwood looks at what cheaper oil means for various parts of the world. And we've an interview with Natalie Ellis, the single mum from Essex who was turned down on Dragon's Den, but whose pet products business now turns over £8 million a year. The Money Show will be back next week in the normal format. But for now, it's goodbye from me, James, Judith and Micah Curry from Fidelity Personal Investing. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.